0: Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place.
1: What ultimately defines what is doctrinally sound and theologically orthodox? Right now, there are theologians arguing about the role that church history plays in our understanding of theology. Though nobody says church history is unimportant, there's great disagreement about just how important it is. Do the creeds and confessions define and establish orthodoxy as some sort of formal written governor of the church? Did Roman Catholic theologians serve to preserve Orthodox theology for us today? Was there a new humanistic hermeneutic born out of the Enlightenment that fundamentally changed the way churches viewed Scripture, carrying them away from Orthodoxy? We'll add our measly opinion to this complicated conversation after the music. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Know, did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue. There's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority.
0: Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement.
1: I mean, it's it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Welcome back to Do Theology wow it's been a while ken you're in a new place how do you feel
0: i feel great this is just so nice you have we have not house. recorded in this format since may yeah that seems pretty crazy and here in this new house got my new my new background of book's just nice and close by and yeah all is well
1: very good it is good to be back and before we get going too far down the road here i want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by our store the do theology store go to store.dotheology.com. theology.com support the podcast by picking up some merch get yourself a mug get yourself a shirt a hoodie i mean temperatures are going to be dropping soon get a hoodie that would be good support the show by doing that or you can buy us a coffee there's a link in the description to buy us a coffee how interesting yeah. is that
0: It's really neat. We want to say thank you. We do have one supporter who supports us monthly through that. And so we want to say a big, big thank you uh, to that individual whose name is out of my brain at this exact moment as I'm doing this That's our friend Gideon, isn't it? Yeah. I think so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, whoever it is, I'm pretty sure it's Gideon. Thank you, Gideon. Just bought us uh, another year with our URL, our domain name uh, renewed. And so paid for that. See, this is what it's all about. Helping out the cause. Thank you. Well, do creeds and confessions establish orthodoxy? That's the big question for today. Creeds, confessions, or you could probably throw in there other figures from church history. Any of that, does any of that establish orthodoxy? Uh, boy, that's a that's a hard conversation to have in some ways, but we're going to try to simplify things today.
0: That's our goal. This is uh this is really a it's a huge topic right now. It's been raging in all the Twitter spheres and all the places where people have theological conversations, which of course such great in depth theological conversations are always had through twitter. so thank you for that platform uh to the... a thousand
1: years from now when we when people look back at this time in church history they'll say Twitter really settled a lot of stuff,
0: yes. <laughs> But there is this debate right now, right? This is ongoing, and, and for, for individuals that are tuned into these things, you certainly would have seen uh, the arguments and stuff as they're flying around. And, and some of these debates have really, um, sadly, to um, not to our credit, are not being held with Christian charity. Uh, I think there's been some things that have been said that are uh, do not have an attitude of grace, and that's, that's sad, Um so that's, the, but but that just shows you how uh, passionate people are about this discussion and passionate mm-hmm. about uh, these matters. Is that it's it's bringing up these these emotions within people, and so we want to try to weigh into that a little bit and try to help us think through and reason through where we ought to be placing the seat of authority as we start talking about orthodoxy and and non orthodoxy and how we arrive at those categories.
1: And. For those who are tuned in to this conversation online and in academia, you'll know that the catalyst for this conversation has really been the EFS debate, the Eternal Functional Subordination of the Son of God debate. Ken, is there any way that we can give a brief summary as to what that debate is about? I mean, since this episode isn't about that, we're not going to do it justice because you need like an hour to have... To really just put the issues on the table, right. but um, if you were to sum that up to somebody, is there any way to do that?
0: the The root issue comes down to how the the nature of how we understand the roles of the Trinity and their natures in eternity past was Jesus the Christ roles the of S- the persons within the Trinity? Correct. Is Jesus Christ the Son? Has he been eternally subordinate to the Father functionally? no no one's arguing for ontological in, in, in terms of their very nature and being that they are subordinate. Otherwise, you end up with a kind of a hierarchy uh, within the Trinity that way. Nobody's arguing for that.
1: Yeah, no but, one is saying Jesus is junior God or that no. Jesus was a creation of the real God, like Correct. Jehovah's witnesses would say.
0: Right. But rather, there's uh, the argument is whether or not functionally, just in the roles as they uh, interacted relationally with with one another within the Trinity? Has Jesus Christ eternally submitted himself to the Father, or has he been equal with the Father with no subordination, and then oh, it is only in his incarnation and in uh, his redemptive work that he submits himself to the Father through that? And that's the nature of that debate. There's uh, proponents on the The EFS side, the eternal functional subordination side that says, yes, uh, by nature of him being the son, he is subordinate to the father just functionally, not ontologically in his being. Then there's the other side, the classical theist side, that would argue, no, uh, that does violence to the nature of the Trinity itself, and that diminishes the deity of the Son if we view it that way. uh, That was a unique thing that Jesus Christ did within his incarnation and his earthly ministry, and so that's, that's the debate that's
1: raging right now. And this touches on the doctrine of what's called simplicity, the simplicity of God, that he doesn't have parts. And so on one side, people are saying, look, if you're going to say the Son has been eternally subordinate, um, you're going to start introducing multiple wills within the Godhead, that there's not one one will of God, which would um, reflect his simplicity, that he, he's not made of parts. And you'll say there are three wills within the Godhead, a will for the Father, a will for the Son, and a will for the Spirit, which then makes God a composition of parts and... and uh, the language that's used is pretty strong and that's why people do get pretty passionate about this issue is because uh, we're talking about some pretty serious stuff even though it's complicated when you get down to it it's like whoa you're you're really kind of leveraging uh, the word heresy here against people right. who call themselves Christians and it goes both directions uh, you kind of have both sides calling each other heretics without necessarily saying that word
0: well I think one side at least is saying <laughs> that word <laughs> we won't say which side yeah there that uh, there there is um is there a reason why we're not saying which side?
1: <laughs> no, go ahead.
0: Uh, to me, I, I've seen it more so on one side than the other side. Uh, the classical theists, are, uh, a lot of them do argue that the EFS position and the proponents is heresy
1: and that they are heretics. Matthew Barrett thinks Owen strains a heretic. Let's just say it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, <laughs> has that's he, I reality. don't know if he said it, but it does kind of seem kind of strong. And maybe mm-hmm. he doesn't think that. But it seems that way. As an observer, it's like... Wow, wow, I've seen the word heresy are,
0: used. I don't have okay. you not seen the word heresy used?
1: I have, but it's all it's not as far as like uh calling the other person straight up a heretic, I don't think. Uh I don't think it's come to that. But I think they're saying what you're teaching is is heresy, heresy or leads to heresy. I mean, there's I don't know. Yeah. It does seem like they're using pretty strong language.
0: Yeah. So the question again, as as we as we're approaching this again, this is not an episode on the EFS <laughs> debate. Like you know, Jeremy and I, we are both still studying and still learning about this. I don't know if I don't know about you, Jeremy. I don't feel like I'm in a position where I could state, okay, this is my position and exactly why at this stage of my study and into these issues. Yeah, I feel that um, way about you too. Yeah, I imagine you do. <laughs> So the, the, <laughs> that, that issue is not our focus today. What we want to focus today is the methodology behind that debate. That's really where we feel like the rubber meets the road in some of these things. And so that's we want to get behind the debate to what's uh, the, the fundamental issues undergirding and underlying that debate and try to help use that to help us think more clearly about how we understand what establishes orthodoxy. Whatever side of that debate is correct, whether it's the classical theist side or the EFS side, how you arrive at the conclusion that is biblical matters. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and and as some of of the classical theists make their arguments against, like, eternal functional subordination, they use as the foundation of their argument certain elements of Church history, like the Nicene Creed or Athanasian Creed— or Thomas Aquinas, he's been really popularly used as of late, um, especially with Matthew Barrett and some of those guys. There's a lot of Aquinas stuff that's happening in seminaries where they're really pushing Thomas Aquinas' view of theology. But the bottom line is that if the classical theists are right, the ones who say there was no eternal functional subordination of the Son, are they right because church history backs them up, Or are they right because the word of God backs them up? And that's the conversation we're having today is um, what do we go to as authority? What do we go to for the foundation of our reasoning when it comes to these intramural debates with other Christians? Uh, The goal for all Christians should be to demonstrate fallacies and other positions based on exegesis of the text of Scripture, uh, but today we have some who seem to rely more heavily on theological works from church history.
0: Yeah, so that's we need to talk about this. Yes, How we do. is orthodoxy established within the church? How do we get there? Now, if you've listened to any of our programs before, uh, you would have heard us dis- discussing some of these things. Uh, we've we've. We're on the record of affirming and, and embracing that creeds and confessions are legitimately helpful and useful tools within church history, and we're going to put a link in the show notes that you can look at from uh, some of our previous discussion on these things. So we don't want to rehash all of that, but to acknowledge, hey, we, we do see that there's value to the creeds and confessions, Absolutely. and even and even though we're going to argue that they shouldn't be viewed as the authority, that, we're, that the authority is Scripture and Scripture alone— That does not mean that we don't find value in creeds and confessions and church history.
1: And it's very similar in our thinking, just to kind of get our cards on the table, too, from where we're coming from. You know, those, uh, if we're talking about creeds and confessions, we don't necessarily see them as their own category, as like something that's above other humanly works that were um, based on the Word of God and accurate. So, for instance, uh, the Nicene Creed, we don't put as, like, second after the Bible, and then, like, our church's doctrinal statement comes below that, okay? Um, as far as any extra-biblical man-made document is concerned, if it's accurate uh, for the Word of God, articulating the Word of God, is it if it's accurate in reflecting what the Bible teaches, then it's helpful. Whether mm-hmm. that's the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, uh, whatever it is, uh, the Grace Community Church doctrinal statement, John MacArthur's church, or our own church doctrinal statement, whatever it is, those are helpful. Uh, not, and not just compilations or um, collaborations where multiple people come together, but the writings of certain people, the writings of Charles Spurgeon right or yeah. John Calvin or wh- whoever you want to look at in church history we we kind of put all of that in one group as long as it is accurate and reflecting what the word of god says we find those articulations to be helpful and useful
0: absolutely and it's i think comparing them to kind of some of our modern day doctrinal statements is it can be a very helpful thing It's in, in many ways, that's that's what these creeds and confessions functioned as in yep. church history, as these guys got together and, and hammered out some theological distinctives and, and sought to articulate it in a clear way. They were developing a doctrinal statement that says, this is what we believe, and that's pretty similar to what we have today Mm -hmm. with our own church doctrinal statements. Um, I know there's many churches, individuals, perhaps from different churches that simply embrace one of those creeds and confessions as their doctrinal statement, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have other doctrinal statements that many different churches and organizations and whole denominations use and embrace, and we're arguing that they function similarly, of similar value to us as we stand here today.
1: And it's— very important to to say that yes. because sometimes it gets kind of sneaked into the conversation like almost the idea that when the men came together when Constantine called for the council to come together at Nicaea that what happened there was something special that when they got together it wasn't that God was giving new revelation but he was doing something then that he wouldn't do in like future times when people would get together to articulate things Well, we don't believe that. We don't believe that that was a uniquely special time where the Holy Spirit gave them special illumination. They had the illumination of the Spirit. If they were believers together, they had illumination of the Spirit just as believers today do. Okay? So we don't believe that God was pouring out some additional revelation and giving them these summary statements that are are doctrinal statements. You look at the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. No one's looking at that and saying that that was a special pouring out of the Spirit's <laughs> illumination or revelation. Uh, and it's the same thing uh, as what happened at Nicaea, um, where they, they come together and they do their best based on the Word of God and relying on the Spirit's guidance and the counsel of one another to develop a doctrinal statement. It's It's, to us, same thing, same category.
0: Now, someone might say, well, but aren't these things authoritative insofar as they accurately reflect biblical teaching? And since they do accurately reflect biblical teaching, therefore they are authoritative. How would you respond to an objection like that?
1: Well, technically you could say that about anything, right? Um, You could take any re-articulation of something that God has already articulated and say, because it's faithful to that original articulation, it then too carries weight of authority— Uh, that argument could be made for quite literally anybody at any time making any articulation based on the word of God. That's accurate to that original uh, revelation of the word of God. So you kind of have to ask more questions when someone makes an argument like that, because uh, again, I think it's just for whatever reason, subconsciously in the minds of a lot of people, because it happened over 1500 years ago, that those early ecumenical creeds are special and over, and authoritative in a different sense than our doctrinal statements today. <laughs> and uh, I don't, I don't understand how people get there logically if they slow down and think through it.
0: Well, I think some of the argument is that well, it, they've stood the test of time. Like it's been, it's been tried and tested for years and years and years, and they have proven to be helpful documents for for so long. And and just the weight of time and age has proven itself to be helpful (coughs) similar to like how maybe some of our cherished hymns today the hymns that stand the test of times those are have greater weight or what whatnot and there might be something to that argument in terms of just the the usefulness and the helpfulness of those documents but just something being old on its own yes is not a good argument by itself
1: yeah and there is a danger in vesting a special authority in a secondary source, even if it is accurate. Right. Yeah. Um, because there is like, it's not just authority, like general, it has authority because it reflects the word of God. It's almost like a special type of authority where you can go to somebody and you could say, look, here's this piece of paper that men have made. Uh, and you disagree with one of the lines in here. Therefore you are wrong. Uh, That is a special type of authority given to that document that's over and against other documents throughout history, and that is very dangerous.
0: Yeah. What we need to be able to do is, if someone is taking issue with one of those lines within any doctrinal statement or creed or confession, that we go back to the scriptures and say, well, that line is there because this is what scripture says, and we believe and stand upon the authority of what this scriptural text says. Yes. That is the foundation and the basis of authority, not the creed itself.
1: And you might say, as you're presenting the text, like, uh, say someone wants to disagree about the Trinitarian doctrine that the Bible gives us. You might, you know, be walking through different passages of the Bible, and then say, as articulated, you know, by the, at, say, Athanasian Creed, because that would be a, a, an important one to look at in the Trinity conversation, as articulated here, and then you quote it. Now, you're not saying that is the same authority as the Bible, obviously. You're not saying that it replaces the Bible in any way, but you're giving an example of how it could be articulated. And if you believe that that creed and that articulation is faithful to Scripture, then you share that with a person and say, what, biblically, how would you argue against this, right? And, and, that's, and that's good and fine to do. We just never start with or make our whole argument based on a man-made document. Right.
0: And so that really gets us to a place where, okay, if, if, if these creeds and confessions, if they, they don't establish orthodoxy, maybe they recognize orthodoxy based on what the scriptures say, really our argument is really coming down to, we have to compare everything to the scriptures themselves, they yes. alone can establish orthodoxy.
1: Yes. Yeah, there's a fascinating passage in Second Peter... Um, Huh. For some reason, uh, I just pulled up Bible Gateway. My Bible Gateway was set to present to me the NIV and not the New American Standard. Dun, dun, dun. Someone hacked me. Heresy. <laughs> Someone's been on my computer.
0: Did you clear your cookies recently?
1: Oh, you know what? I did. I did That's do the, that this morning.
0: That is the Bible Gateway default,
1: the NIV. Okay. Hey, look at you. Look at you. All right. Well, now that I switched to a real Bible, uh, just <laughs> oh. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> totally just kidding. Um, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Peter warns the believers he's writing to by saying, "'False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be uh, also false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves.'" And the the part I want to highlight in the middle of that verse is that Peter is telling the believers in the first century before the New Testament is finished being written, he's telling them that there are false teachers who will secretly come in among them introducing heresies. So he's using that word heresy even before the New Testament is finished being written, which I find to be quite interesting. Um, On a very basic level, it means that orthodoxy preceded any of those extra-biblical documents that were written in the 300s or 400s or 500s. You have orthodoxy established in the Word of God, and anybody deviating from the clear, plain teaching of Scripture was actually teaching heresy. So orthodoxy and heresy existed before uh, any man-made document came later on down the road.
0: Yeah, and this... This, uh, this passage is is a great pet so I, I just taught through the whole book of second Peter at Camp Sinago uh, Bible camp to the teen uh, to the uh, yeah the senior camp there that was a lot of fun um, but going through this text and seeing how this text it comes right on the heels of a passage where Peter is instructing us about the nature of the word of God and how God's word is established and we have a the God's word we have a a more sure word of prophecy it's fully or strongly confirmed depending on what translation you're using to read the end of chapter 1 of 2 Peter where Peter is is laying out hey we we can have confidence in the Word of God. It didn't come about through private interpretation or, you know, whatever else, but it comes as God's Holy Spirit moved men along to write the Word of God, and that's that's a strong contrast with how these destructive heresies come about. Like, okay, this is how we get God's Word, and it is sure. We stand firm upon it. Well, there's these other people that have these other ideas that are not coming from the Word of God. Mm
1: Yes, and so the whole concept of heresy is going against God's Word. That's how Peter presents it at the end of chapter 1, and then he spends all of chapter 2 talking about uh, the heretics. But now the question becomes, who gets to interpret God's Word, right? I mean, that's the natural next question in this debate is, okay, well, that sounds a little simplistic just to say, well, God has given us orthodoxy in His Word. Well, there's all this debate as to how to interpret His Word and what what his word actually means. How and do we so,
0: decide? Who gets to decide?
1: That's it. And, yeah. and, and it can be easy then to appeal to figures in church history as the authority in interpreting, especially if you get a collaborative work and say, look, you have this, this ecumenical document where all these guys have come together, and they've decided collectively that this is the right interpretation of Scripture. Therefore, we look to that document as the sole interpretive key for these doctrines that they talk about when it comes to the Word of God. And so um, what's what's wrong with that argument, Kenneth? People appeal to creeds, confessions, whatever it may be, in church history as the uh, key to understanding the text.
0: Well, this, this gets back to what is, again, the final authority. Anytime you're looking to something outside of Scripture itself, you're making some man made or even just men themselves the final authority that's that's just problematic on their own you know it's 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 this is a little bit of a of a side on this same discussion it's interesting to me that this uh, objection has been raised so much recently by protestants when this is an argument that the catholic church uses all the time now just because the Catholic Church uses an argument doesn't make it wrong on its own. Uh, but this is one of their favorite arguments. Well, who gets to decide who interprets it? And say, oh, well, the Church. We're, the Church gets to decide. And I think there's some of that within Eastern Orthodoxy as well, yeah. going yeah. back to appeals to uh, you know their magisterium and all those sorts of things. We're vesting authority into something outside of the Scripture itself. Ultimately, anytime you do that— those other things become the ultimate authority. Yeah. It's not Scripture anymore. Scripture is now subservient to whatever these other authorities have to say.
1: Well, and, and I think there's something we can catch back in that Second Peter uh, passage at the end of chapter 1 in Second Peter, when he says how we got Scripture in verse 20, know this first of all, No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. (laughs) So that throws up just a big neon sign right there. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made, this is verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is telling us not that, the Holy Spirit shut down the prophets and the apostles and made them robots and, you know, their eyes were closed and they were just bop, 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 talking like (laughs) robots or something. That's not it. Um, But he is saying that what they wrote did come, uh, it came from God. What came off of their pen or uh, what came out of their mouths as they proclaimed it to Israel, that came from God and they were just the means of God delivering their message. And the fact that they weren't robots means that they had a level of understanding as they were communicating these things to their audience. They weren't uh, shut down and, (laughs) I don't know, I I use this example like 1 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians has a lot of interesting things in it. It's not like Paul was shut down uh, mentally, and God overrode his brain, and he wrote 1 Corinthians, and then afterwards said, I have no idea what I just said. That's not how that worked. And so ultimately, who gets to decide what Scripture means? The author of Scripture gets to decide what it means. And we recognize that there's a capital A author and a lowercase a author. And that they're not opposed to one another, but that they work, they work together in the presentation of Scripture, that God used them as the means to convey His Word. And so we go to the Word of God itself using the basic principles of understanding communication, to see what God has said, and we 're able to do that we don 't have to appeal to some special counsel to give us the meaning. we can yes. appeal directly to the authors of scripture because the capital A author was the one who was working behind and through them all
0: and this is something that again in our in the afore- before mentioned, uh, aforementioned whatever the right way to say that is uh, the aforementioned video that uh, that we have done before discussing this that 's in the show notes. We've discussed this issue about—this is really a question of the clarity of Scripture. Is Scripture clear enough on its own to be able to grasp the basic meaning of what is being communicated there? And we're arguing that it is, that God has communicated through the human authors in such a way that He intends to be understood. He's not— you know, hiding behind smoke and mirrors, he's not putting up all these different things that are just confusing, and the only way to figure it out is if we have these trusty creeds and confections. Wow. Convections. (laughs) Convections. Creeds Uh, and confessions. That that's the only way that we can ever hope to understand what God's Word actually says. No.
1: Because, well, let's think about this logically. How did those guys... take, Take any figure in church history who's written on the Bible faithfully, or group, How did they arrive at their conclusions? By going to the scriptures and examining what the authors had said, right? Yes. It's not, again, we we reject this notion that God gave them some special illumination or that God gave them further revelation. They just did what we are called to do, which is go to the word of God and examine it and extract the meaning from the basic principles of interpretation.
0: Amen. Now, someone might object. If you do this, though, isn't this how you're not relying on these extra-biblical documents? You don't have the creeds and confessions to serve as your guardrails. Isn't this how cults come about? Hmm. Isn't this how you end up with all these different cults? People are, people are opening the Bible and just declaring that it means X, Y, Z, and now a new cult is born.
1: If Joseph Smith just would have believed the 1689 London Baptist Confession, there would be no Mormonism, Right. That's that's it, <laughs> and that's true. I mean, I, I, I can <laughs> I can admit to that. Yeah, if he would have been just, you know, full on believing what that said, yeah, that he would not have started Mormonism. I totally agree. But uh, but let's consider the objection for for a moment. Look, if you if you reject extra biblical documents as the governor of the church, if you reject creeds and confessions as the governor of the church's doctrine, you're going to end up with cults. Well, that's also how you get non-cults, because there are lots of lots of lots 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 of churches throughout history who did not have an official, formally written, extra-biblical governor for their doctrine that remained orthodox based on them going to the Word of God alone. Okay, so we got to say that first. Yeah. Uh, let's let's pause for a moment and consider what we might be highlighting—the uh, minority here, kind of like. Um, if in the upcoming midterm elections, say, like, four socialists get voted in, uh, which is very possible in our day and age, someone might look at that and say, see, democratic republics, they don't work. This is what happens whenever you ha- you live in a democratic republic. You're going to get socialism in your country. That's what's inevitably going to happen. And we're going to say, well, wait a second. There were hundreds of non-socialists who were also <laughs> voted in here. Um, I think there are other issues. It's not the the method Of voting, that was the problem. There are other underlying issues. And that's what I would say about people making this argument. It's not the method of going to the Scripture to see what God has said on a a local church basis, as the local church comes together and they study, and even individually as we study on our own. That's really not the problem. Cults get started because of other issues, not because of that methodology.
0: Right. And if you think about the different ways that, uh, that creeds and confessions have not been particularly helpful in Church history, and this is something that you know, we've kind of alluded to this already in our discussion already. Protestants point this out to Catholics all the time who rely on their own Church authority and, and what has been handed down to them through the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the same thing, oh, we're appealing to these ancient things, and, and that investing authority within
1: the Church itself. Or, or how many times I've had a conversation with a Mormon who basically argues for justification by works based on James 2 and then what their church has said about James 2, appealing to something their right. church has said. I, I don't care what your church has said, even if your church is referencing the Bible. Here's why they're wrong. We have to have that conversation. We go to the Bible and consider James in context.
0: And to our to our Baptist brethren out there that are listening, uh, the, every time that you've had a conversation with a Presbyterian and they're arguing for the necessity of infant baptism, and you're saying, well, now, hold on a second. I don't care what your Westminster, you know, confession of faith says. What does the Bible say? That's your argument, and Mm -hmm. it should be your argument. That should be the argument every time. It doesn't matter what the Westminster Confession says. It doesn't matter what the London Baptist Confession says. It matters what does the Scripture say? What is the example that we have in the Word of God? And so that's." That's the pattern that we want to adhere to. That's the pattern that we want to call ourselves to when we start thinking about the usefulness. Again, I think this question of, oh, this leads to cults assumes that we're not using these resources and these tools at all, which that's, that's not the case, but we need to recognize them for the tools that they are and not invest within them, yes. those things themselves as
1: authoritative yeah. on this issue to use Mormonism as an example again, just because it's all around me, um, you know, Joseph Smith started a cult, and he did so by saying that all of church history was corrupt. That's how he started it. And that's not what we're saying. Right. <laughs> we're not right. saying that that uh, even in this episode, we're not going as far to say that Thomas Aquinas is corrupt. Now, we could have a conversation about Thomas Aquinas if we wanted, but but we're not making any of those claims today. I mean, grant we can grant you all kinds of helpful, good Biblically faithful articulations of Scripture throughout church history. Totally. And say, these are our brothers in Christ, and God used them greatly in building His church. We Amen. Can totally say all of that. Yet we're also going to say that is not the foundation of our argument when it comes to doctrine. The foundation is Scripture alone. Let's not spend so much time on these church figures in church history who can be helpful, and they are very helpful. Let's spend the bulk of our time in examining what God has given us, which is His Word. Yes,
0: amen. And it's the last thing that I want to say on this particular objection about, well, this is how you get cults. To me, it's worth the risk to be able to stand on Scripture alone, to be able to, to have the Word of God and use that as the guide. That is, it is worth the risk. Yeah, you know, I I consider it somewhat analogous to the idea that this is, this is present within our current legal code of in, uh, um, you are innocent until proven guilty, and that come, that's a biblical principle that comes from uh, the Old Testament law. But it is better to let a guilty man go free than to let an innocent man be wrongly condemned. And so we start on the basis of a man is innocent until proven guilty. The evidence has to be presented. He cannot be convicted of a crime until the evidence that is beyond a reasonable doubt has been provided in order to condemn a man for a crime. And in a similar way, I think it is better for us to be able to rely upon the the sure word of prophecy, the, 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 the word of God that we have more fully confirmed for us, be able to stand upon that It is better to have that with the possibility of cults popping up than for us to be reliant upon something uh, like church history or a creed and confession that may or may not accurately represent what
1: scriptures actually teach. Well, let's wrap this up by presenting two categories of, of, like, implication of all the things we just said. Let's then examine the implications. And the two categories are what this does not mean and what this does mean. Uh, three things for each. So based on everything we just said, this does not mean that we are no creed but Christ people. Uh, you, you'll you hear that kind of sentiment presented positively by some people in some churches. Like, this is kind of the outright rejection of church history view. Yeah, um, No creed is ever helpful or um, whatever. We, we just need Christ. That's it. Uh, we we don't need anything else. Um, and there's some truth to that, depending on how you articulate it, but there's also a lot of falsehood there, too. Our churches have doctrinal statements that the churches you and I are associated with. Yep. We we come from churches that have had doctrinal statements, and they should have doctrinal statements. We have to articulate our beliefs. And so if if someone is saying, no creed but Christ, meaning our church doesn't need a doctrinal statement, let's just say that you know, we, uh, we have Jesus, and that's it. Well, that in itself is a doctrinal statement, isn't it? Or even, and, or
0: even if we just say, oh, what's your doctrinal statement, and you hand them the Bible.
1: Yes, it's right. Like,
0: well, that's, that's not really helpful. Like, it, it is helpful and yes. good to summarize
1: and to distill the things that we believe that
0: dis- make us distinct.
1: Yes, what, what distinguishes you from the thousands of other Christian denominations that exist? Uh, what distinguishes you from false religions? Um, because there are false religions that are based on the Bible. We already mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses, um, a whole bunch that are like that. And so to say no creed but Christ is a very, very dumb thing to say. We're not saying that that's the way people should think. Right.
0: We also don't outright reject creeds and confessions whatsoever on the basis of, well, okay, we're not saying they're authoritative, therefore— or we're saying they're not authoritative, therefore we don't have any use for them whatsoever at all— we're not doing that. We're not saying, oh, you can just forget about church history. Don't even read the creeds and confessions. They're useless. No, we do find value in those things. And, and we, I don't know if you've done this at your church, Jeremy, I've taught through uh, the the Apostles' Creed and have have broken down why these things are in there and and the the things going on around the time of Nicaea and why that was important. Yep. Like we've we've taught through some of this, I think you've taught through church history. Yep. At, oh, at your yeah. church, church, and we're, and we're so getting you,
1: ready to do another six week session in church history starting in two weeks.
0: There you go, and and and, and that's useful and that's helpful yep. and that's good. So we're, so we're not rejecting or ignoring church history, we just. Yeah, if I could put a spin on of our uh, little tagline for our podcast, we
1: want to keep church history in its place. That's exactly where my mind was too. That's so funny because that's not in our notes. We both thought of that at the the same time. Um, Yeah, I mean we we recognize again that there are so many helpful, faithful articulations of Christian doctrine. Uh, In my systematic theology class, I'm very often quoting. Different councils throughout church history that have articulated doctrines well, and so um, totally agree that we just want to keep it keep it in its place, um, not substitute <laughs> uh, church history in where the Bible speaks so clearly. Uh, we just want to have that appropriate balance in all that we do. And the the third thing that this does not mean we are not saying that we should embrace this other wrong way of thinking just me my bible and the holy spirit for this life that's all i need just me my bible and the holy spirit that's bad thinking um is it enough to just have you your bible and the holy spirit to understand what the bible says yes i will affirm that i mean you think of so many people who have come to faith like augustine how he came to faith and martin luther how he came to faith It was very much in this way. I mean, I know a guy who was saved uh, through reading a Bible that was placed by the Gideons. He was in a hotel room, and he read. I mean, that's why the Gideons placed the Bibles there, right? I mean, so you have when those factors come together, yes. Does God use that? Yes. But is that all that God has for us in this life? No. From the moment a believer becomes a believer, a person's born again, that person is placed into God's family, the church— And it says in Ephesians 4 that God has given gifts to his church, including teachers Mm -hmm. and evangelists, for equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So to get equipped to live the Christian life, to further understand, to more deeply understand what God has said, we need each other, because God has has built his church, he's designed his church, he's placed us in his church.
0: And that includes saints from history past. Yes. Right? The books that they've written, the resources that have been developed, that includes— All of those faithful resources that are available to us that God has blessed the church with.
1: I I love the start of the Five Minutes in Church History podcast with Stephen Nichols. Uh, The little intro thing, each time it says, this is our story, our family history. Hmm. And as we look back to saints who have gone before us, we are studying and learning about our family history and where we came from. Um, And then, of course, today, as we're in the church, we're learning from our family members, that God has equipped and gifted in special ways to help equip us, and we need each other.
0: Very good. So those are some things that we don't mean as we have come, come through this discussion. Final thing, things that this does mean, things that we are affirming and embracing. Number one, orthodoxy is totally and completely contained within the Scriptures. Full stop.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that is, it's a delightful statement to make. All of orthodoxy is found in the Word of God. We don't need anyone or anything else to deliver orthodoxy to the church.
0: It's kind of just a big a punctuation point on the end of, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up this episode, but it's, that's it. Scripture, is complete, like it is sufficient. That's that's yes. this whole idea of, of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, you, that it's interesting that this the the debate about it almost has become a debate about sufficiency it within has. the midst in the midst of this this debate. We, you know, a lot of times we think about the debate about sufficiency being argued against. You know, maybe charismatics or individuals that are relying upon um, additional sources of God speaking, secular counseling to. Right, yes. Secular council. that's a good example as well. But here, even with this debate, we find that this issue is really kind of coming up, and do we need the creeds and confessions to help us in order to establish orthodoxy at all? And and we're arguing, no, the Scripture is fully sufficient to completely establish all of orthodoxy.
1: Amen. Amen. Yeah, it just feels good to say that. I don't know (laughs) why. It just uh, makes me feel good. Well, good. (laughs) (laughs) Secondly, a a thing that we are positively saying is that Scripture alone can be used as the foundation for our argumentation. Everything else is merely supplementary. Okay? We have one foundation, which, you know, you you read through uh, Scripture and we see, uh, like the great hymn says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, right? Right. and he has gifted the church, the apostles and prophets, this is Ephesians 2.20, of the apostles and prophets who have laid for us the foundation through their special work, with their special gifting, in their special role, the word of God was delivered over to the saints. And the faith now is handed down to the saints. And we, we have the word of God as the foundation. That's what scripture says in Ephesians 2.20, is that the work of the apostles and prophets is the foundation. And everything else is on top of the foundation. It's supplementary to the foundation. And our argumentation has to reflect that. It can't ever leave someone thinking that we believe something else is the foundation. We always have to be clear in the way that we present that.
0: Yes, yes. Finally, Christian conversation and debate, even as what we're discussing today, it needs to be rooted in Scripture. And open to figures of church history being proven incorrect. Like we need to have that openness. That hey, if, if the scriptures can correct some figure in church history, even even a creed or a confession, we need to be open to that. Yep. And I think there's like there there, there has to be some level of acknowledgement. Like the the very reason that we have different creeds and confessions that exist. Even you look at the Westminster Confession and the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Well, they're at odds with one another, right? They're, they're not—in uh, many cases, they are, I think, nearly identical in many, yeah, in many right. places. But there are points that are—there's disagreement. Well, why is that the case? Well, different individuals are trying to understand what do the scriptures say and articulate that differently. We need to have an openness to say, hey, if you can prove to me from the Word of God that my position is wrong, my articulation of what the Scripture says is wrong,
1: well, I need to be open to receiving that. And I'm going to throw out one more thing that I think happens in people's minds subconsciously. And that is a lot of people want to find that pure line of church history Mm. that has flowed from Jesus to today. Again, beating up on Mormonism because it's, they're my neighbors and I love them, but Mormonism is so wrong. Mormonism started because Joseph Smith said there has to be some kind of a pure line. All the denominations have gone wayward. All the denominations have become corrupt. And so uh, God is restoring his church. That's ultimately what he resorted to. And a lot of Mormons will say it's either the Roman Catholic Church or the Mormon Church, because God has only built one church. There's no such thing as denominations. There will be one true and living church. And Mormons decided they would believe that that true true church actually failed early on, and then God restored it later through Joseph Smith. Well, we know that so many Reformed people today— and other people who are prone to adhering to creeds and confessions, they would never say that. They would never say that the church had to be restored or through the reformers or anything like that. But there is almost a subconscious feeling, I think that many of them have, at least I pick up on it, that they need to find through all the ages of church history, as they look back at the cross, they need to find that pure red line Mm. that has maintained doctrine purely throughout all the ages. And then, they can quote everybody who's in that line as authoritative, mm. and that's a problem.
0: Yeah, the uh, Landmark Baptists kind of get into that a little bit with yes. their uh, trail of blood. Cor- yeah, um. I didn't
1: even—I wasn't even thinking of that when I said red line. Uh, imagine I said yellow line. I didn't mean to associate <laughs> those people with, with Landmark Baptists, but—
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, that is something to to be aware of and on guard against. Absolutely. So, um, very good. Well, that's that kind of concludes uh, that discussion today. I hope this has been helpful for you. If you have points of critique or argumentation, or you want to push back on something, we're open to hearing that. But our challenge for you, show us from the Word of God areas that we need to be sharpened in and refined in. If you can show us in Scripture, we're open to correction with that, but it, it's got to be from the Word of God. And so that's, that's the whole point of what we've been trying to get at uh, through this whole episode. So, uh, yeah, send us your feedback, show at dotheology.com. We've gotten quite a few emails. Uh, there's actually a few in my inbox that I've not responded to yet, so I apologize to any listeners who I've not gotten back to yet. Um, I hope to do that soon. Um, but yes, we do, we do get emails that way. You can reach out to us on social media, Facebook or, or Twitter. At Do Theology is our Twitter handle. Uh, so all the different ways that you can reach out to us. And... We have said a few different poems. We have encouraged individuals to leave us a voicemail. You can open up Facebook Messenger and there's a little microphone button and you can record a voice recording and leave that kind of like a voicemail and we can extract that and play it on the show. We've gotten a few. And we are planning to do a mailbag episode where we will play those and answer questions that different people have brought to us. And so we're opening the door for you now as, as we are anticipating recording that episode. If you want to leave us a voice recording in a similar fashion, you can have your voice on the show as well. So we encourage you
1: to reach out to us in that way. We need to get uh, 1-800-CALL-IN number like Todd Friel. Yeah. one eight seven seven two eight two beep I think that's what it is. <laughs> is that I the jingle? The, I got the jingle st- <laughs> like that that jingle stuck in my head. But uh but yes, we would love to hear from you. Uh send us some great challenging questions. It it would be a lot of fun to do a whole episode of just responding to user questions and to have 10 or 15 of them that we could just hit in rapid order. I think that'd be a really fun episode. Yeah. Anything else uh, you want to share about life and ministry and your uh, world, Ken?
0: Now, things things are going well. It's um you know, we have really, really come out of a really busy season this summer that was just all kinds of wild things happening all the time. A lot of traveling, moving and unpacking and getting everything situated and a lot of details with that that we're still still sorting through and things. So, uh, yeah, pray for God's graciousness in the midst of that as we continue to take steps forward. The church is going well by God's grace we're excited about some of the developments that have been happening and looking forward to seeing how we can continue to reach out to our community. Um, I'm on a track and a pathway towards ACBC counseling certification, so that's pretty exciting. Looking forward uh, to—I'm just about through phase one for people who kind of know what that's about. Two more phases to go.
1: So you're doing your ACBC certification— and finishing your master's degree, working that way, and planting a church, and uh, you've got your electrical work that you do on the side to bring in some money, and you've got four kids, the youngest of whom just turned one, Yeah, and you're in a new house that has had a few issues you've had to work on and, you know, clean up, and, and you're speaking at camps and traveling around speaking at different churches, uh, and you're doing this podcast, <laughs> <laughs>
0: when you put it all together like that, it, it certainly sounds like a lot. But
1: sounds like you need to learn how to say
0: no. <laughs> I, I am learning. Uh, I am learning. That's that's been a process. There's there have been a few opportunities that I have turned down here in the last couple of months because it's just too much. So that is something that I've been learning and developing. Uh, some of these other things have overlap so some of the things that i'm working on like for my mdiv degree is directly applicable towards the the counseling side of things so it's not it 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 sounds like a lot but there's a lot of overlap between it um but yeah all all in all god's been good to us and we're very grateful for his sustaining grace in the midst of all the things that are happening and so. you guys
1: aren't sick. I know you guys got sick like 16 times in the midst of this busy summer. Yeah,
0: at at the moment of recording we are not sick, but this seems like that is a something that just kind of chases us around. And, and people with with you know large families, they they know, you know, it, it just happens. So
1: Yeah. What about you? What's what's going on in your neck of the woods? We've been pretty busy too. July was slow for us. June was pretty busy and August was crazier than than June. Um I've done three weddings this summer. That's been cool. And uh, yeah, the church here has been growing, which has been very exciting. I remember when you
0: made a comment about how you thought you would do like 10
1: funerals before you ever did a wedding in Utah. Yeah, that's right. And now I've done four weddings in a row since my last funeral. So that's cool. We're just working on keeping that nursery full, you know. Um, (laughs) So we've got uh, people showing up from all different walks of life and different areas we're, we're just having a lot of fun it's yeah it's it's pretty busy this this past sunday was the highest attended sunday we've had since we've lived here so in eight years um over eight years uh that's been cool and we've got a building addition project that we're working on uh getting off the ground and uh, yeah school just started my wife has all three kids in homeschool and yeah a lot of other stuff happening but it's all cool. good. It's all good. We're we're healthy. We don't like ever get sick. So
0: now yeah, that I said teams. that, we're gonna miss Sunday. Yeah, probably. probably.
1: <laughs> we. I'm not superstitious. Just a little stitious. Just a little <laughs> stitious. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no things are things are going really well here, and of course Utah is very interesting. We have our huge outreach. I don't know when this episode's gonna come out, but we have our huge outreach next weekend, which is Labor Day weekend, hmm. and. Uh, That's where we're going to see thousands of people from our area. And uh, it's going to be a lot of work, but it's always a lot of fun. People really like being a part of that in our church. and We've got some new shirts showing up that we got printed up. One says, Jesus is my righteousness. And the Mm. other one that says, Saved by Amazing Grace. Uh, These are statements that are meant to trigger those people walking around us to start conversations. So, cool.
0: Very good. Well... We, get, we do thank everyone for listening once again, and if you stayed through <laughs> to the banter and the life update and stuff, thank you for that. And until next time, do theology.